We're going to bow our heads and just pray and ask the Lord to touch this Bible study. God, I pray over your word tonight, God. I pray that you would help me to communicate, God, what you've put in my heart and my spirit. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you would anoint it, God, for your purpose, for your glory. God, that somebody would leave here a little bit closer, a little bit stronger, a little bit more able to have victory in their life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I see a couple of guests. Can we give our guests a hand clap? Thank you for being here to all of our guests. Amen. I, I want to talk about walls and gates tonight. Somebody say walls and gates. There is a lot of discussion and perspectives on walls in our world today. You can turn on almost any news station and hear a host of opinions on why we need them. And why we don't. Amen. In scripture we read about Israel marching around walls. We read about Paul being let down in a basket from a wall. We read about walls of jasper and gates of pearl in the book of Revelation concerning heaven. We've heard sermons. How many of you ever heard a sermon on rebuilding the walls? I've also heard sermons on tearing the walls down. (laughs) And so sometimes we don't know what to do with the walls. Amen. But tonight, I hope to put some perspective on the importance of walls and barriers and how they impact our spiritual well-being. Because barriers are important. They separate us from things that are harmful to us. Amen. They separate us from things that can be dangerous for us spiritually. And there is one kind of barrier we drive by all the time and barely notice them. They're called guardrails, and they line the roads and bridges at precarious places that a person might drive off of the road. And one thing is for sure, no one has ever regretted having them, but a few have regretted not having them. How many of you ever seen the videos of cars going over cliffs? When we lived in Flagstaff, there was a young lady during a snowstorm trying to drive back to Phoenix, and... Uh, she she couldn't see well enough to stay on the road, and she just disappeared for about six months until the snow all melted, and uh, there was somebody who was scouting for elk hunting season in the early spring uh, after the snow had melted, and they found her car about 400 yards from the road down in the bottom of a valley because she she drove off of the road and needed a guardrail. She regretted, I'm sure, for those few last moments of her life. They're not being a guardrail. And so um, guardrails are made for the messy moments. If you've ever needed one, you know exactly what I mean. A guardrail is a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. It's a barrier. And I never realized how much I liked guardrails until we took my four-year-old son, Rowan, to the Grand Canyon. Any parents been to the Grand Canyon with a small child? Um, I thought we were going for a nice day, beautiful scenery, a great time. And I spent most of the day squeezing my son's hand until it was blue. (laughs) Because in case you didn't know, the Grand Canyon doesn't have rails all the way around it. (laughs) There's a few spots that there are rails, but there's a lot of spots that that have no guardrails. And so I, I was squeezing his hand, chasing him. Just thinking every few moments, what if he just decides to turn and run that way a few feet and I can't catch him? 
And so it was a stressful day. Nothing between my wild, crazy, hyper kid and a several thousand foot cliff. If you don't know what adrenaline's like, that'll give you a little shot of adrenaline. And so I, I realize now that placing a rail along a several hundred mile long canyon just isn't feasible, but that is exactly what I wanted that day. I was hoping and wishing that there was some measure of safety, a dog leash on the child to pull him back anything. An electric fence, you know, that, that shocks the kid when they get too close. Anything would have done. <laughs> Amen. Some of you like that idea better than others. We can tell what kind of kids you had. <laughs> Why did I want that? Because there are times that barriers are the only thing between us and certain disaster. Uh, when, when I was a teenager, we had a property. My parents bought a property about 14 acres and we moved out there from the city and we got horses and we didn't have fences yet. And I remember uh, we were trying to come up with a way. We First, we bought a round pin and we figured out, like, that's really not big enough for a horse to live in. It was good for a couple days. But so so we went around the property and we put up uh, a perimeter of electric tape fencing. Anybody ever dealt with electric tape fencing? Um, it's one of the funner products um, that you'll ever deal with. Because what, would, what it would do is, when the, it's just a thin piece of white tape that when the horse would come up close to it, it would shock the horse. And the horse would learn you don't cross this barrier. You don't, you don't go beyond this point. And the reason we set it up was because we had roads at the back of our property. And, and there were roads at the front of our property. And if we didn't keep the horses in, they would get away and, and perhaps be run over by a car. And so we, we didn't want disaster to strike the horse. So we put up the barrier, the electric fence. And it kept our horses safe. Now, uh, the interesting story is that we had this, this spring gate that you pulled across and it would hook. And then the gate would shock when the metal touched the metal. It would, the current would pass through it. And uh, being a lazy teenager, there were a few times where I decided to step over the barrier. Bad idea. <laughs> Bad idea. Because, as you can tell, I'm not the tallest guy. <laughs> I don't have the longest legs. And there were more, I, I hate to admit this, in the house of God. There was more than one time that in crossing over the barrier, that it would shock one leg and I'd jump and it would shock the other leg. And if you're not careful, you get in that, stuck in that cycle of shocking back and forth over and over again. But barriers are not meant to be crossed, right? They're meant to keep us in, to keep us safe and to keep some other things out. And so spiritually speaking, we need barriers and boundaries in our life. The Bible says that we have an adversary walking about seeking whom he may devour. We are in a spiritual war. How many of you know that? Sometimes we lose sight of that, but we are in a spiritual battle every day of our life. There are principalities and powers and spiritual darkness in high places that are set up to catch us and captivate us. They are set up to work against our spiritual progress. Somebody say we're in a war. And when you're in a war, you need protection, right? We have an enemy. We have 
a, a spiritual enemy. And there are some barriers that the Bible talks about that can keep us safe from attack. In the book of Nehemiah, we read of a time in Israel, <clears throat> excuse me, that God's people in Jerusalem were exposed and vulnerable to the attack of an enemy who didn't want them to succeed there. We read the first few opening lines of the book of Nehemiah. And the Bible tells us and paints this picture of Jerusalem being in ruins. The wall is broken down. The barriers have been destroyed. If, if you press rewind on the story, it'll take you back to the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah prophesies that because Israel has walked away from God, because they have prostituted themselves spiritually and gone after other gods, that they will enter this period of 70 years of captivity. And so the word of God came to pass. And what happened was an evil nation swoops in to Israel and they they tear down the walls and they take God's people captive. We, we remember the story of Daniel and um, uh, uh, of the three Hebrew boys that were taken from Israel into Babylon, into captivity. And not only does the enemy take the finest young men and women and, and take the nation of Israel captive, but in the process, they tear down the temple and they tear down the walls of Jerusalem. They want to leave Israel with no place of worship and they want to leave Israel with no place of protection from which to rebuild. And so it's all in rubble and in ruins. And, and, and then the Bible says along comes uh, some history that we need to know about. Um, the Bible says that it's a century after Israel's 70 years of captivity when Nehemiah hears the news. It's it's almost a hundred years later. And the, the Bible details how God used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city of Jerusalem. After the Babylonian captivity, a remnant of the Jewish people had returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra. And these returned exiles had rebuilt the temple, but now they were in need of protection. So it happens in Several phases as God begins to bring Israel back that things began to be restored from the captivity. First of all, uh, first came Zerubbabel who led the rebuilding of the temple, the house of worship. Perhaps you remember the passage of scripture. The Bible says that when they get finished building it, that the old men weep while the young men rejoice. It, it's a stark contrast that day in Israel. A shout went up and everybody is excited. Well, almost everybody is excited about the temple. But there are some who are old enough there to remember what it was like. It's a former temple with Solomon's temple. And after they get done rebuilding, the Bible says that the old men weep and the young men are rejoicing. Because the old men can remember how great it was before. And so God used Zerubbabel to come back and to rebuild the temple. Then after him came Ezra. Ezra began teaching the law to all of the people again. What you had is you had a nation of people who had come out of the Babylonian exile and they didn't know who they were. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't know their history and their culture, where they came from. And so Ezra realized and went back 
at the word of the king and begin to teach the people the law again. They had a temple, but they lived and looked and uh, and thought like the world around them. They had no concept of God's word. They had worship, but no word. And finally, God sends Nehemiah back because though Israel had a temple and that now that they had learned the law, they were constantly under attack and exposed to the enemies around them. They were in danger the Bible says, and were a disgrace because the walls of their city were torn down and the gates were burned with fire. The lack of fortified walls around the city left them defenseless against surrounding enemies, weather, wild animals, opposing people, and any opponent could easily enter and cause great trouble to the people because they had no walls. According to the report Nehemiah received, the remnant in Jerusalem was shamed. They were ashamed. A city with broken walls revealed a defeated people. And so I want you to get the picture. God is is trying to bring back Israel to its former glory. Trying to restore to them what captivity has destroyed. And they have a temple, a place of worship, a place of connection with God. They now have the word, they've been taught the law, they have devotion, they have uh, understanding of the law, the word of God, but they don't have victory. They don't have progress. They don't have dominion over their enemies. The Jews who had returned to their homeland were both in unsafe conditions and humiliated at living in a destroyed city. In Nehemiah 2.17, Nehemiah told the Jewish leaders, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. So come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Why did God send Nehemiah? He sent Nehemiah because there were no walls, and there were no gates. No walls. And no gates. And nothing could move forward in the plan of God for this group of people because they had no walls and they had no gates. Nehemiah said that we will no longer be a disgrace. Now, I looked up what the word disgrace means in the Greek, and and it literally means to discredit or to bring shame upon. And so what Nehemiah is saying is we are the children of God. We are the children who have been delivered from captivity. We are the children to whom God has called to come back, to rise up, and to rebuild what captivity destroyed. And we are a dishonor and a disgrace. When we have a temple, and when we have the word, but we have no victory, because we have no walls and no gates. So, we have this picture of God's people. They have the temple, they have the word, but here they are exposed and vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. What what a picture. I believe that there are so many people today, they know the church, they have a house of worship they go to, they know the word of God, but I want to tell you those two things alone do not guarantee us spiritual victory. 
you can go to church. You can have salvation without having spiritual victory and fulfilling the will and plan of God in every area of your life. You can have a temple and you can have the word. But there was something missing in their life that would allow them to have victory. They were exposed to every attack of the enemy. Not because they didn't know the word, but because they didn't have walls and gates. They worship God, they know His word, but they have no victory. Their lives are not a great testimony of the God that they serve. Nehemiah goes to God and he says to God, essentially he says, God, what, what will the other nations say of us? That you've brought us out of captivity, but here we are with ruined walls and gates. Why did Nehemiah weep? Why did he weep? He wept because the plan of God and the people of God could not move forward because of the condition of walls and gates. And so God sends Nehemiah to rebuild and restore the walls and the gates of the city and to restore safety and blessings to the, pe- uh, uh, to the people of God. And so, Nehemiah is an interesting character. The Bible says his name means the consolation or the comfort of God. The comfort of Yahweh. Um, I, I'm reminded of the scripture in the New Testament where Jesus says, I will send another comforter and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. Nehemiah, I believe, is a type of the Holy Ghost. He's the type of the Holy Spirit. And his purpose is to come and to raise up a defense for the people of God. To raise up uh, uh, walls and gates for the people of God. The Holy Spirit, when it comes, it will lead and guide into all truth. And, and here's Nehemiah. He's this type of the Spirit that when the Spirit comes in, it begins to raise some walls in your heart and in your life. And in your spirit. And he begins to put some gates in your life. Why? Why would God go to all this trouble to, to move a king? To move an entire nation to fund the rebuilding of Jerusalem? Because walls keep dangerous things out. And gates give us the control over what enters in. And so I want to talk the rest of our time tonight about some walls and gates that we need In our Christian walk, we're going to talk a little bit about walls. It's going to be huge. (laughs) Amen. Forgive me for my sense of humor. Is anybody awake tonight? (laughs) Amen. So, So what does life without walls look like? What does it look like when we have no walls? The people have been living back in Jerusalem 90 years, and yet the walls are still in ruin. The Bible says they have no ability to keep the enemy out. There is no worse place to be spiritually than to be exposed to every attack of the enemy. I've lived there. Anybody else live there? No worse place to be than the place where every thought that the enemy throws your direction, you take it as if it's gospel truth. No worse place than every lie that comes your direction that you are exposed and vulnerable to. And so um, the enemy could and did raid Israel at every strategic moment, every time they started to make progress, every time they started to move forward, every time good things started happening for the children of God. The Bible says that the enemy could come in at any moment from any direction and undo and uh, and destroy what they had been 
working on. We see that in Nehemiah when they start making progress building the walls. And word comes through a spy in the enemy's camp that they are planning to strike when Nehemiah and the builders are not ready and bring their work to nothing. Now, I don't believe this was the first time that they had done that. That every time that the the people of God tried to scramble a little bit higher and tried to move a little bit more towards what God had called them to be and to do, the enemy would assert themselves. They would let it go for a little while, but then the enemy would assert themselves and they would come in and undo all of the progress that the people of God had. And so it's interesting to read how Nehemiah shifts their strategy. They split the work group and half stand guard while the other half work. I want to pause here and say sometimes it's better to work slower and safer than faster and exposed. Because what we try to do, sometimes we try to make the will of God happen so quickly. We just want to get it done that we leave ourselves open. Nehemiah takes this strategy. He says, it might take us twice as long to get there. But we're going to make sure that we are on defense against the enemy. The Bible talks about uh, the qualifications of a bishop and, and, and leaders of the church. And he says that we should not elect uh, people to offices of bishop or appoint people to offices that are a novice. Lest they are uh, brought into pride and ensnared or entrapped by the devil. Fall into the trap of Satan. Because faster is not always better. Faster is not always better. Nehemiah says we're going to slow things down. We're going to split the workforce. And half are going to stand guard. And the other half are going to work. It might take us twice as long to get there. But it's better that we finish the race than that we run too fast in the beginning and are not able to finish. It's better that we count the cost and we finish the work rather than trying with all of our might to get it done as quickly as possible and we fail in the long run. And so Nehemiah shifts their strategy. And while the strategy works, it's important to note that you can survive without walls, but you can't thrive without walls. You can survive. They were living. They were constantly on guard. They were constantly looking to the hills, watching where the enemy might come from. Constantly on guard. And they could survive and they could make a little progress. But it came with great effort. They lived in constant fear. Constantly on guard against an attack that could come literally from any direction. What they needed was walls. And they needed them badly. Without walls, they were living at the enemy's agenda. Whenever the enemy wanted to come in, then they were in crisis mode. Anybody ever lived that way? Let me tell you something. When you don't have walls in your life, you'll live in crisis mode. Because you can be doing good for Jesus. You can be going to church and having a good time. But if you don't have boundaries in your life that keep you from sin... That, that keep you from doubt, that keep you from fear. If you don't have boundaries in your life, it doesn't matter how good you're doing because you're living on the enemy's agenda. 
At any time he wants to attack, you've got to stop what you're doing and slow what you're doing in order to just survive. Anybody ever feel that way that every time I take a step forward that it seems like I, I get attacked? Every time I start to make progress, it seems like I'm under spiritual attack or, or my faith comes under attack or my family comes under attack. Something begins to go spiritually wrong or awry and I face resistance. Paul said that there are open doors, but there are also many adversaries. That every time that there's opportunity spiritually, there is an enemy who is opposing us. And so they needed walls because until they had walls, they were living on the enemy's agenda. Walls would stop the enemy from these attacks that they couldn't defend against. As it was with them, so with us. Let me tell you, a believer needs worship. A believer needs the Word. And a believer needs walls in their life. What are walls? They're barriers that we put between ourselves and the attack of the enemy. They are guardrails that keep us from straying off of the wrong path. Or off to the wrong path. They are barriers and boundaries that we set up in our lives to keep us here and the enemy there. Perhaps you've heard them called this, convictions. Anybody ever heard of convictions? Christians without convictions are exposed to every attack of the enemy. Christians without separation in their life are exposed to every attack of the enemy. Listen to Proverbs 25, 28 says this. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Who? A man without self-control. Somebody who holds nothing back from themselves that they want is like a city that has no walls. It's like a city that has been broken into and the walls have been torn down. What is, what is Solomon saying there? What Solomon is saying is that the wise, the prudent man, will keep from himself things that are not good for himself. And I'm not even necessarily talking about sin. I'm talking about having a margin between yourself and temptation. Paul said... All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient to me. And so as a Christian, I've got to learn to listen to the Spirit. And I've got to learn to walk a little further back. You know what we did when we were at the Grand Canyon with my son? Is we didn't tiptoe along the edge. We, we did like this. Boy, it sure is beautiful over there. <laughs> While holding our son back from plummeting to his certain death. We weren't jumping along the rocks at the edge. Now, I've done that when I was younger. We climbed out to the edge, hanging over, living on the edge. But listen, when you're a father, you don't want your kid marching along the edge. He might not fall over, but he might. And so, how much more then does our Heavenly Father want us to leave a little margin between yourself and certain destruction. To develop convictions in your life that will protect you. 
Mike Pence recently came under fire by feminists because he said that he won't be alone with another woman besides his wife. And while the world is shaming him, I say, good job, Mike, because Mike understands that nothing can be accused or said if he's got a wall there, if he's got a boundary there, a barrier there. That's why there are some places that as Christians, we are convicted not to go. Now, my conviction may not be the exact same as your conviction, but my struggle isn't the same as your struggle. But understand this. We, we have got, we've got to have walls. We've got to learn to listen and tune in to the Spirit of God to say that there are some things that we don't need to watch. Because they impact and affect my spirit. And I might not go to hell if I see it, but it might, it might make me get a little closer to an edge that I don't need to go over. And, and so we've got to learn to raise some walls in our life. How many of you believe that? We've got to learn to live with convictions. We've got to learn self-control. We are good enough to justify anything we want to justify. That is the human condition. We're good enough to justify anything we want to justify. We can do it. Trust me. Any kind of, of excess that's out there, somebody has a scriptural justification. There's a Christian somewhere that has an argument for why it's okay for them to do that very thing. Now, y'all looking at me, but y'all know I'm right. <laughs> it's the truth. We can justify anything. And so we've got to learn self-control. We've got to learn to say no to our flesh. We've got to learn to say no to our self-driven desires because they will always carry us to a place where we are exposed to the enemy. Am I saying that everything's a sin and we need to go huddle in a corner out of fear that we're going to fall off some uh, unknown edge? No. But what I'm saying is that as we walk through this life, the Spirit is there to convict us and is there to help us and is there to comfort us. And sometimes the comforting work of the Spirit is putting a wall between you and certain disaster. It's putting a wall between you and divorce. It's putting a wall between you and addiction. It's putting a wall between you and embarrassment and humiliation. It's putting a wall between you and fear and anxiety. Sometimes that is the comforting work of the Spirit. It's to raise up walls that give us the comfort of knowing that my salvation is secure and that the Lord has kept me from the attack of my enemy. Somebody say walls or barriers. We need to learn the power of the word no. When I was a kid, my mom, that was her go-to. <laughs> I remember getting so frustrated. I'd ask every Sunday, every service, can I go over to a friend's house? Can a friend come over to my house? I know I'm preaching to some parents right now. Y'all hearing me. I didn't realize the constant barrage my mom was under from four kids. And you know what her default response was, Sister Judy? No. I would say, but you didn't even think about it. <laughs> no. We're not going to do that. No. No, no. I just picture her with a rubber stamp. No. 
She just didn't know how to get a hold of that other one that said yes. <laughs> That's how I felt. She just, she was the queen of no. No, not for me. No, no, you can't do that. Can't go there. Can't do this. Can't do that. And I thought as a kid, why does my mama always say no? Well, we need to learn the power of no. You want to know why? Because no is a boundary word. No is a wall word. Some people struggle to say no. How many, anybody want to raise your hand? Amen. If you struggle to say no, everybody look around at them because that's who you need to ask to do you a favor. <laughs> See, now y'all shouldn't have raised your hands. We want to know who, who can't say no, don't we? Because when we find out, we'll ask, they'll ask you to do anything and everything if they know you won't say no. But some of us struggle to say the word no to people. We don't want to say no. We feel somehow obligated to say yes. We want to be pleasing. But it takes courage to say no. It takes a strong sense of self-awareness to say no. But as Christians, like we need to get real comfortable with the word no. There are some things that we have to learn to say no to. There are necessary boundaries that put a safe distance between us and spiritual ruin. And too many Christians live too close to dangerous places. Too many Christians flirt with disaster. Too many Christians can't say no to their flesh. The beauty of a boundary is that it's a clear identifier that you're entering into dangerous territory. And self-control is the ability to set boundaries on our speech, on our desires, on our relationships, on what we watch, on what we do with our time. Saying no needs to become like a spiritual gift in our lives. We need to learn what my mama learned, how to say no. Nope, not going to watch that. Nope, not going to go there. Nope. Not going to have that conversation. Nope, not going to gossip with you. No, not going to believe the bad report. Nope, not going to check my faith in for doubt. No, no, no. Because understand this. The enemy is going to offer you temptation every day of your life. And it's not always going to look like sexual sin or, or some of the, the big bad ones. that Sometimes it's just going to be the easier way. And so we need to learn to familiarize ourselves with the wall-building word of no. No, devil, I'm not going to doubt today. No, I'm not going to stop praying. No, I'm not going to stop believing. No, I'm putting up the shield of faith. Somebody say no. no. We've got to learn to say no. not going to talk about that. There are some thoughts that we need to learn to say no to. Every thought that comes to you is not your own. The Bible says that we do spiritual warfare by casting down imaginations. Somebody say imaginations. That's thoughts. Casting down imaginations and every thought that exalts itself against the will of and the mind of God. We've got to learn to say no to some thoughts that come to us. Well, maybe they really just don't like you. Maybe they've got a problem with you. Maybe they did this to be vindictive. 
And sometimes we just need to learn to step back and say, no, I'm not going to believe it, devil. I'm not going to fall for it. I'm not going to become exposed to what you're trying to do. I've got a wall up in my life that I'm just not going to go there. I'm just not going to backbite against my brother. I'm just not going to devour my sister. I'm just not going to gossip about it. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to sit around and bellyache about life and live in negative words. I'm not going to do it. No. Somebody say no. No. It's a wall that protects us. When we say no, it keeps us from the temptation that lies on the other side. From the attack that lies on the other side. I had a conversation with my son the other day that, that sometimes he struggles to believe in himself, in his own mind. And so... Sometimes when we correct him, he takes it super personal. Anybody have a kid like that? They just, it's not, don't do that. It's, now I believe I'm a terrible person and a bad kid. And we had a little talk. And I feel like it's a talk a lot of us need to have. Is we had a little talk about that when things happen, when bad things happen, and uncomfortable things happen, when we get to that place, we don't need to believe the first story that always pops into our head. Because there's an enemy that wants you to believe the worst about your situation. And so he'll throw a thought at you when something happens and something comes up. He'll throw a thought at your mind or a story. He'll begin to unfold this narrative that leaves your life in a very negative light. And we just need to learn to say no to it. Say, no, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm, I'm putting a wall up against an attack over my thoughts. How, how do I do that? I believe the Bible teaches us to do that through putting on the whole armor of God. Somebody say it's a defense. Said I've got a helmet of salvation. I think differently because I'm saved. And my thoughts are protected because I'm in Christ. And I can believe that I am a child of God. I don't have to believe everything the enemy tells me. I don't have to live in condemnation. I don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live... Believing that I'm going to be lost. I don't have to live with all those things that the devil tries to throw at my I don't have to believe those stories because I've got a helmet of salvation. I've got a breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness protects my heart. I need to raise a wall of righteousness in my life. Why do we live right? Because it protects us from the attack. It, it protects our heart from getting caught up in the things of this world and in sins that can pull us and drag us away from God. I put on the breastplate of righteousness. I raise up the shield of faith. These are all walls that I need to build in my life. We need walls and boundaries and guardrails to make sure that we're not giving the enemy access to anything in our life. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Because we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says the grace of God teaches us, trains us to renounce, to repel, to put a wall between ourselves and ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live upright, self-controlled lives. Ephesians 4.27 says it this way. It says, neither give place to the devil. 
Without walls, we always will end up discrediting our own faith. We will not flourish or uh, prosper. And like Nehemiah's generation, we can have worship and even the word, but no real progress elsewhere. Convictions are necessary to navigate through this world. And let let me tell you this. If I don't say anything else that you get tonight, I hope you get this next sentence. Is the Spirit will tell us where a wall should be if we'll listen. The Spirit will tell us. Anybody ever felt a check in your spirit from the Holy Ghost? You were going to do that and God said, "Mm, don't do that. Don't do that. And it might have been a little thing. But the Spirit, the Spirit will speak to us and will tell us where a wall should be if we'll listen. Galatians 5.16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of of the flesh. And then he goes on to tell us what the works of the flesh are. It says that it's fornication and idolatry and, and lust and uncleanness and all of, all of these things. And he says, here is how you guard against those things coming in and robbing you spiritually till you are bankrupt. He says, you walk by the Spirit that you do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Why? Why does that work? Because the Spirit will tell you where to put a wall and the Spirit will tell you where to put a gate. The Spirit will tell you what to keep out and what to allow to come in. And so He knows where the walls need to be. When when you walk by the Spirit, there will be times that the Spirit says no. Even the things that don't seem wrong. Paul said that they were going to go in their uh, missionary journey to a certain place and, and the Spirit said no. Don't go there. I want you to go over here. The Spirit will lead you and to guide you into the place that you need to be. And the Holy Ghost will check us if we allow Him to. He knows where the walls need to be in our life. And so we build walls by the Word and by the Spirit. What do you mean by the Word? Well, there are principles and precepts. Precepts are clearly spelled out things in the Bible. Like, like for instance, flee also youthful lusts. Flee from sexual immorality, another version puts it. But that's clear. There's a wall that needs to go there. It, the Bible says, let there not be a hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality among you. It's just not something as Christians that we engage with. There's a wall there. That's a precept of Scripture. Another one is resist the devil and he will flee from you. Same word. He'll put distance between himself and you if you'll resist what he's doing, what he's speaking, and what he's saying. And so there are precepts. We build the wall by by word, by the word of God. And we also build walls by spirit through principles that the uh, spirit of God will speak to us. God wants walls in our life. Somebody say he wants a wall in my life. Not only that, but he... God also wants gates. Walls keep bad things out, but gates allow us to regain control over what comes in. And if you look at the nation of Israel at this time, they couldn't control what was coming in and out of their city. They, had, they were on the enemy's agenda. They, weren't, they had no control over what came in and what went out. And so Nehemiah was burdened by the lack of walls, but also by the burnt down gates. Gates were the entrance to the city. They were the point of controlled entry. And without walls, get this, gates were useless. Now you can put up a gate, but if there's not a wall, the gate is useless. And so 
With walls in place, gates become a place of decision and discernment in the life of the believer. If I'm open to anything and I have no boundaries and and, and nothing that separates me from the way that this world lives. If If I don't have convictions in my life that guide me every single day. If I'm not walking according to the word of God and the leadership of the spirit, then the gates don't matter. But but there are some filters that God wants us to have. Gates with the entrance to the city um, and, and the point of controlled entry. And interestingly, the word no is used 18 times more often than the word yes in the New Testament. I think my mother might have wrote the New Testament. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But the walls, there are always more walls in a city than gates. There are always more walls. If you, if you study the Old Testament maps of Jerusalem, there are always more walls than gates. And there will always be more no's than yeses. Because gates are controlled points of entry. They are the spiritual filter by which we allow or disallow things to enter our world. And there are some gates we need in our life, areas that we need to regain control. And so just for the last couple minutes, I want I want to talk about some of the gates that Nehemiah rebuilt, because it's really interesting. The Bible says that the first gate that Nehemiah rebuilt was called the sheep gate. And why did Nehemiah start there? It was just north of the Temple Mount near where the sheep market was for the temple sacrifices. This is where the uh, shepherds would bring their flocks into the city and bring them to the sheep market where people would buy the sacrifices that they would take to the temple. And so the reason for the sheep gate was that it was a place where the sheep could be brought in so that sacrifice could be made so that people could be atoned for their sins and so that uh, they could receive the benefit of the atoning blood of the Lamb. That was the whole reason for the gate. And so Nehemiah goes and he resets the, the sheep gate so that there is a place of sacrifice. We, here's what I believe it's saying, is that we need to regain the ability to control our heart and our mind and our spirit in bringing it to God in our life. There are some people that are pulled by people, that are pulled by emotions, they're pulled by circumstances. But the first gate is the gate of relationship. It's the gate of connection with the Lamb of God. It's the gate through which I open my heart and my soul up to the eternal God to reconcile myself to Him through the blood of the Lamb of God. And so the first thing I need to do is I need to put a gate in my life where I can come to God, where I can can tell my heart and my mind that you're not going to go that direction. You're not, you're not going to go another direction. You're not going to look to the things you used to look to, but we're going to look to the Lamb for our salvation. And so we need to reestablish control over repentance. I know that sounds strange to say, but the Bible says Esau sought repentance and could not find it. Why? Because he had no walls or boundaries. He had no separation from the world around him. In fact, he went and married 
some Midianite girls just to make his family mad. Why, why could he find no place of repentance? There was no going back for Esau because he didn't have the control in his life to bring his heart and submit it to the things of God. And so that's the first gate that we need. The second gate was the fish gate. The fish gate was where all the fishermen came in and brought their fish, and it was a market full of food and commerce. I believe it's a gate that represents a gate of commerce uh, and, and, and blessing, that we've got to be able to redeem and, and bring cont- spiritual control over our finances. Oh, wow, y'all didn't see that one coming. <laughs> but I believe that that's what he's talking about. Is, is I, I posted a scripture that uh, I read in my devotion the other day. Many of you maybe read that, where it talks about that, that when we cannot control our worldly wealth, when we cannot control our money, that we also cannot be entrusted with the true spiritual blessings. In other words, if you can't give your money to God, you can't give your heart to God. And so we have to bring stewardship back under our own control. Anybody ever felt like your finances were under somebody else's control? Reacting to circumstances and all these things. Let me tell you something. The Bible teaches us how to handle our finances. And it teaches us how to be wise stewards. It's a gate that needs to be reestablished in our life. Because the Bible says where your treasure is, your heart is. We need to reestablish control. The enemy would love nothing more than to continue to throw financial trouble at you. And keep you distracted and doubtful. To keep you unable from going on the mission strip that you need to go on. To keep you from doing and, and investing in the kingdom of God like you need to invest in it. Does anybody see why there's a spiritual issue connected to money? Is Nehemiah said, we've got, we've got to get our relationship with God back right. And then we've got to get, regain control over our finances. And he, there was also another gate. It was called the old gate. It's called that because it was at the old quarter, the old part of the city. And then they built outside the gate, and it was a gate that led from the old to the new. And so, we need a gate that will allow us to access the new things that God has for us. Anybody ever notice people get stuck in tradition? They get stuck in an old way of thinking. I I think of the Old Testament when the Bible says they lifted up the brazen serpent in the wilderness, and they were healed because God used that at one time. And, and then they just kept right on worshiping that same old thing until God had to send a prophet to break it in half. And he said, it's just Nehushtan. It's just a piece of brass. Why are you worshiping the miracles from yesterday when God has something for today? We have to regain control of our heart and our spirit and maintain an openness to what God is going to do next in our life. What God is leading us to next in our life. So we need a gate that allows us to access the new thing. Not only that, there was a dung gate. And literally it was the gate that they took all of the garbage out of the city to this uh, garbage dump in the Hinnom Valley. And so we need a gate for old things to go out. We need to have control of what comes into our life and what goes out of our life. Right? And so... There's a gate for old things to go out, like holding on to that blessing from yesterday. Sometimes it's time for the old to pass away and for the new things of God to come into our life. There was another gate, the valley gate. 
It sat at the south of the wall of the old city. And it was the gate Nehemiah used when he began his inspection of the walls. It actually led down into the valley of Hinnom where perhaps the worst moment in Israel's history morally had happened. It was where they had sacrificed their own children to the god Molech. And it was there in the valley of Hinnom that that happened. And God put a gate there. A gate so that you can come out of your past. A gate so that you can leave old things behind. A gate so that you can leave condemnation behind. That there's a way back to God from the darkest, deepest places. Not only that, I believe it represents the valleys that we walk through. God wants a gate there so that we can receive value from the valleys that we walk through. When we walk through valleys, sometimes it's easy to think that God's not with us, that God's not for us. But God is building us and shaping us in the valley. And there are things that we need to allow in from the valley. There's a gate there. I like this one. I'm going real fast, I know. There's the fountain gate. The fountain gate led out from the pool of Shelah to the king's garden and the stairs that went down to the eastern slope. Quite simply, there were people who lived around the city and this was the gate they came to when they needed water. They came to the fountain gate and to the water gate. What does it mean? God wants us to have gates in our life that allow others to come and drink from the waters of life that we've drank from. And so we have to become a fountain of blessing to other people. We've got to regain control over our ability to witness, over our ability to share the gospel with people. We've got to regain control over our ability to minister to people that are hungry and that are thirsty in this world. We've got to regain control of that because as long as we have no walls, we have no gates. We have no gates. It's the walls that allow the gates to function properly. And no wonder we can't win souls when we're constantly under attack from the enemy. Constantly fending off every attack. We've got to raise up walls so that we can open up gates. There's also the water gate. It's not the same one that you're thinking of with Richard Nixon. But the water gate was... uh, near the start of the tunnel waterway that was fed by the spring called Enrogel. The narrow confines included the upper house of the king, the home of the high priest, and the ascent to the armory. After the wall was built, Ezra led the peop- uh, read the people uh, the law from a square by the water gate. It was the home of the high priest, and it's the place where Ezra stood and taught the law to Israel. It represents the washing of the water of the word. There's got to be an entrance place in our heart and in our life for the word of God to lead us and to speak to us. And the last one I want to talk about is the east gate. The east gate is also known as the golden gate or the temple gate. It's just north of the horse gate and it led to the temple. This is the gate that Jesus entered during his triumphal entry. It was the gate where people came and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so I believe it represents a readiness to receive the Lord upon his return. We've got to live ready for Jesus to return at any moment, at any time. We've got to live ready as he could be coming through the eastern sky. Notice, he comes from the eastern side 
of the city through the eastern gate to come to the temple. The Bible says in the last days that he will split the eastern sky and he will come out of the east and he will stand upon the temple mount. It will be a visit just like it was in that day and time. And so Christian, we've got to have walls so that we can have a gate that prepares us to be ready to receive the returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need walls, but we need some gates too. We need to regain control over some areas of our life and walk with God so that we can say no to the lesser things and yes to the greater things. I want to close by saying this, that walls and gates frustrate the enemy's plans. I loved reading in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. It displeased them greatly that walls were being raised and that gates were being repaired. It displeased the enemy greatly. I want to tell you, nothing will frustrate the devil more than church people who begin to live by the Spirit and by the Word. Church people who begin to allow God to wall some things off in their life and begin to open them up to some other things in this life. I want us to stand together at the close of this service. I don't know why the Lord laid this on my heart to speak about tonight. But I can't help but believe that there are some people who feel defeated. You feel like you can't get any spiritual traction. That you're always fending off and fighting another attack on your mind, on your heart, on your spirit. And tonight, I want to encourage you. I, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord where the walls need to be in your life. Let everything come under the rulership and the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Let everything. Let there be no wall that he can't set up. And let there be no gate that he can't open up. Because I believe when we do that, it allows us to rebuild the city. It allows it to become a place that is a light to the world all over again. It was the rebuilding of those walls and gates that allowed Jesus to come and to reveal himself to the world. And so I believe it is with the church that when we have walls and gates and when we repair the broken places in our lives, that God can begin to use us to reveal himself to the world. Amen. Why don't we just pray for a moment. Ushers, prepare to come in just a moment. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, God, for hearts and minds that are exposed to the enemy, God. People who haven't understood while they're under attack. God, I pray that you would quicken to their mind, their heart, and their spirit right now why they are struggling, God. Why they, they've been under attack. Why the enemy seems to come in at his own pleasure. And I pray, Lord, God, that you would begin to speak by your spirit where walls need to be raised in our life. I pray, God, conviction of the Holy Ghost would come upon us. God, I pray that you would lead us and guide us, God, in the steps that you want us to take. Lord, you know perfectly the path of each person in this place that they need to walk, God. You know perfectly our areas of weakness and struggle. And so, God, I pray that you would speak to them tonight, that we may strengthen and that we may see your glory come down in our lives. And everybody said in Jesus' name. Ushers, please come at this time. We're going to receive our tithe and offering. We wait to the end because some of you can't get here right away at 7. And we, wanna, we don't want to deprive you of the opportunity to give. So give as unto the Lord. Uh, I know, as I said before, this weekend is going to be a great 
great time in the Lord. Uh, Pastor Wayne Nealon is going to be preaching to us. And how many of you will, will just take 15, 20 minutes and pray for Sunday these next few days? Raise your hand if you'll join in prayer. We want to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this place, on these altars, for God to continue what He was doing in here on Sunday. Man, what a powerful, powerful time of God we had. Um, just continue to pray with us that God begins to accomplish it according to His will and purpose. Amen. God bless you. Hug somebody's neck before you go. Shake somebody's hand. Greet somebody, and we will see you here on Sunday. May God bless you.